You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Jeff Gross, CEO of Medical Guardian, a personal medical alert monitoring company. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Now, tell us a little bit about Medical Guardian. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Sure. Well, I started the company over 17 years ago, and we've become one of the leading providers of personal emergency response services in the U.S. We currently protect over 310,000 seniors with our service and devices, which range from home to mobile to wearable devices, with emergency response at the core of the service, with extension services into vitals monitoring and engagement services. So who's a typical client who needs this? Well, your typical client's an 80-year-old woman who lives alone, whose husband has passed, and whether she's had falls or medical emergencies or not, she's certainly uh, a candidate for, you know, emergencies happening. And our level of protection helps them stay living independently at home for many years longer than they would otherwise. It's typically two years before home care, four years before an assisted or independent living facility. And our customers and patients typically come on board in their late 70s. So, and of course, male or female doesn't really matter. Male or female. Three quarters are females, one quarter male. And I think they're just a little bit more stubborn and don't live as long typically, but we're chipping away at that best we can with new devices. Sounds good. You want to keep our loved ones around as long as possible. Yes, we do. Now, what's your favorite part of your job and why? Well, I think my favorite part of the job is that it changes every year. As you go from a one-person organization to a 350-person organization, you have to change with the job or uh, it changes with you. So I think at this point, it's really spending time with my team and the variety of different initiatives and things that I get to do on a daily basis. But the luxury of being 17 years in business and you know building a team of experienced, talented, uh, like-minded professionals is really the best part. And probably what energizes me more than anything. And and just being able to get involved in so many different things on a daily basis. I could be in a board meeting and have a new hire lunch, you know, uh, talk to a managed care organization in the afternoon and, and uh, a lot of different things in between is certainly what fuels me. It sounds like no two days are alike by any stretch of the imagination. I would say that's pretty accurate. That's right. Which makes it fun for those of us who like variety. That's right. You know, you got to turn the stress into energy. And I think variety is good for folks that get bored easy and uh, like to do a lot of things and can get distracted easily. So it keeps me engaged, if anything. Yes, yes. And in doing all of this, what's one of the biggest issues of the day? And how do you have to adjust your, your approach when you're talking to different key stakeholder groups about it? Well, you know, there's been so many changes for every business in the last couple of years. I'd say amongst the sort of secular trends and larger world issues going on with the transition to home, for for our business, it's really about a couple of things. And the main thing is we went from a a business that was wholly owned by myself, had no boss. Uh, We had a lender, but generally making decisions on my own with the team and being quite nimble there. About two years ago, we took on a private equity investor, developed a board, and I'd say decisions are made 
Similarly, in some ways, we're still nimble and move fast, but there is a sort of a level of, of oversight and scrutiny and, and checks and balances that just weren't there before. So, you know, that's an adjustment for any entrepreneur who sort of grew up in his own place. And, you know, I've adapted well to it. I think the, the main reason is I made a commitment to partnership. So where I see a lot of founders and entrepreneurs fail when they bring in an investor or private equity, any type of institutional partner is, you know, there's this protection and control and, you know, there's a little bit of division that can be created either by the approach or the personalities involved or whatever it is. For me, it's worked very well because I dedicated myself to communicating a lot, to being very transparent, to being inclusive. And ultimately, that's led to better performance in a group that is getting along quite well. When you first took on this board in the private equity, what's something that you realized you had to do differently in communicating with them? In the beginning, what what just took a few minutes to fall into place of sorts? What's a new shift? Well, it's funny. There has been a lot of shifts. And they say you learn your lessons in life by making mistakes and you don't realize them until you make them. But for me, it's really been about preparation of communication in the sense that, you know, to get on a call with a, a larger, small topic that has a lot of components to it and try to explain things in real time before anybody's really been aware of them is a mistake that I made sort of over and over again, I would say for probably a good six to 12 months. What I learned is preparing people with written information. In my case, a big example would be last year, I had someone on my leadership team that was a higher up that I had been fighting for a promotion. We have a compensation committee and I had a number of reasons that this person was going to should be promoted both from a title and a comp perspective. So I decided to raise this point without a lot of preparing the board on the topic. They weren't even aware of the topic. And it led to just a a number of questions, probably a little messiness as far as the direction of where the conversation went and ultimately not a good outcome of which I had to try again. I did it sort of the same way, unsuccessful. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to take two hours on a Saturday because it takes time. I'm going to write it all out. Here's what I want to do. Here's why I want to do it. And most importantly, here's what it's going to lead to for the business from a financial and generally strategic perspective. And this is why we believe we should do it. And then once I did that, the next call was, yeah, that makes sense. Sort of call it stamp of approval. And we moved on. And so, you know, I do that with a number of different initiatives and whether it's project-based or people-based or strategic-based, I think it cuts out a lot of the questions and it leads to better conversations. Because when you get to that conversation, you can get right to the things we're confused about or the things we need additional information or clarity on and uh, allows us to move much quicker and get more done. It's funny the to think that it took two hours to write the email. You realize to get everything, that it took that much time just to hone so that it was a message that didn't take two hours to read the amount of editing and organizing and revising to really send that out in a way that you knew this was crystal clear. People underestimate the the value of that because if you just try to get up there and explain it to people where they can't go back and reread, they can't check double things, their brains may or may not be focused as you're talking. And chances are yeah. you're neither as organized nor as concise nor as accurate when just trying to speak aloud, especially if it's somewhat extemporaneous talk, as you can be in an email where everything you've had a chance to chisel, 
and then sand and then polish to make sure that it's exactly the way you want it to come across. That investment of time, I can imagine, is invaluable. Especially today. You're, you're right. I mean, it, we're so used to texting and chatting and calling and Zooming today. We forget the power of the written word. And the written word can be edited, can be thought out. It can be powerful when you write something in a way that resonates or connects in a deeper way. And I think it's really about dedication to preparation. Yes. And don't underestimate the handwritten note either, <laughs> by the way. I think a very powerful tool that's almost obsolete at this point. I wouldn't recommend it for sending every idea to a board, but I would recommend it for other communications, whether it's partners or team related. And what kind of communications do you send via handwritten note? Well, one thing I do every year, because I hate the standard holiday card that comes with the standard Harry and David basket. It has no real care or, or genuine approach. I still write handwritten notes to our top 100 partners. And it takes me about three to four weeks because I'm busy during the days. And so I, I try to knock out, you know, 10 a day and really take my time to connect with somebody and to let them know what they mean to us and what our plans are for next year. And I think, you know, that that's different than most people get at the holidays. And I think people remember that there's a authenticity to it. And uh, it's important to me. So, you know, as the company's gotten larger, it's definitely gotten harder. And so maybe you have to fine tune the list a little bit, but ultimately I do that. And, you know, I try to, I try to write notes to my team. You know, we do a lot around acknowledgement and recognition in the business. And uh, again, it takes time. I send a birthday card to everybody in the company that that's harder at 350 employees than it was at 50. Yes. But it's still as powerful of a tool. I would imagine that We've talked on the show what, every now and then about the the book, The Five Love Languages, which has been more recently translated as The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace or something along those lines, but that there are those who like the actual physical gifts and that that is a, a particular way that they express and recognize appreciation. And it sounds like the quote unquote love language or language of appreciation that is a strong point of yours and that clearly goes behind sending all these handwritten notes is the acts of service that you're going to spend time and effort doing something for that other person. Because whereas it may take somebody 10 seconds to read the card and go, oh, that's nice. And hopefully they'll put it on their desk or on their bulletin board or something and not just circular file it. The fact is it takes you a long time to call the list and then to actually hand write everything. And then of course, have somebody else send them out most likely. But nevertheless, it's, it's a lot of effort. And that is a great act of generosity that I think tends to be under-recognized and underappreciated. Well, and it all comes down to building relationships. I think in any business, what, no matter what your product or service or strategy is, relationships are what drive the business internally, externally, but getting that harmony within the team and, and getting people to know one another, to understand and have a perspective for what each other does, that way they have each other's backs, right? You're always working closely together. You're protecting each other. You're understanding that not one department or area of the business drives this thing. That's key. And so, you know, I start that right when a new hire comes on board. At this point, I do a new hire lunch. I actually did one today at 15 people in it because we started, you know, a couple dozen this month. And so I'll do one to two a month and we spend an hour. Now we do it virtually. We used to do it in person, but I treat it a little bit like first grade where I go around the room and who are you? Where are you from? What do you do for us? What did you do before this? I love to know how they got here. Was it through a referral or, or some other mean? And it allows 
me to get to know them and them to get to know me and, of course, answer any questions that they have, but also gives me a chance to let them understand what our culture is all about and to understand what they've been dealing with in their career. And so, you know, the feedback that I'm happy to get more times than not is they don't feel like a number here after their first few weeks, you know, because we've intentionally hired leaders rather than managers, people that are dedicated to motivating, inspiring and supporting teams and treating them like human beings. And they're there because we want them to be themselves, right? Whether we're selling or servicing or have a skilled position in between, uh, we're only as good as the team that we build here. Yes. And I want to draw everybody's attention to one other point, which is that, you know, this show is speaking to influence and the vast majority of my work is really focusing around oral communication. But there is a direct and essential correlation between spoken and written. And the fact is, when it is time to write, do so. And writing doesn't replace speech. Speech doesn't replace writing. It's about the relationship between the two. And in that first example with the board, if you can spend two hours honing a message really tightly in writing, so it takes them however long to read through it, and then the conversation that results is a 30-second conversation where you say, what'd you think? And they say, looks good, rubber stamp, move on. That's the yes. Everybody out there, how many times have we talked about the three C's? All about effectiveness. That's what it comes down to. Whether it takes you two minutes or two hours, you want to maximize effectiveness. And so whenever I'm writing an email, you know the people that write, you know, they quick emails all day long. They just want to check it off their list, right? And so, you know, there's certain things that require a level of thoughtfulness that are beyond a quick email or a quick response. And so that's the difference I've found within my team and even my own actions between sort of good and great outcomes, right? How much thoughtfulness am I putting into this and how much am I willing to do to make sure that I maximize effectiveness, whatever that means for that scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people all often say, well, I don't have time to read through this. I don't have time to hone that. Well, if you don't have time to do it right, when will you have time to do it over? Because you know you're going to have to have a follow-up conversation or a lot more emails going back and forth to clear stuff up. So let's get it right. And again, if you can do it in writing and then minimize the quantity of speech so that the quality of speech and the effectiveness, remember the three C's, command the room, connect with the audience, close the deal, that closing the deal, getting to yes, agreement formation is that fast from the minute that you start talking Yay, that was the best conversation you ever had. Let's do that again. So writing and and even the handwritten notes, holiday cards or New Year's cards or birthday cards, those kinds of things, little bits and pieces of that personal touch can make the quality of the conversations that come afterward that much more personal and make you feel like you're really part of the team. So I think that's terrific, Jeff. Well, thank you. So then these are all examples of people you've gotten through to easily. Who's the toughest audience that you ever had to get through to? (laughs) Well, there's so many. Where do I start? Uh, you know what stands out to me more than anything is a is a difficult customer in the sense that I would say an angry customer. If you have you know 310,000 subscribers that you're protecting every day and you do a good job 99% of the time, you're still leaving 1% unhappy or less. And, and that leads to, at the end of the day, a number of customers making their way, certainly to our service department and beyond, but some actually get to me, whether it's a letter or an email or a call. And I respond to you know one to two a week. And you know, I found that nice people, reasonable people get angry and unreasonable when something they expected to happen doesn't happen. And the best thing you can do is listen, listen and learn, be responsive, solve their problems, of course, care about it, but then put in a process 
so that this doesn't happen again. Because I think that's where a lot of folks leave off. And we're all so busy problem solving and plugging holes. What a lot of folks that escalate all those CEO want to see or lower levels is they want to see that something's going to be done about it, that this isn't going to happen to somebody else. And so an extreme example, it actually sits on my desk. There's a letter back there. In 2013, we launched a new product with fall detection technology. Fall and, detection. And I want to make sure everybody heard that. Fall detection. Okay. So this means if you're wearing one of our devices, if you can't press the button, whether you knock yourself out or you have a seizure or something similar, you can still get help. It'll detect your fall and actually automatically dial out to our monitoring wow. center. Okay. A lot of companies at the time were apprehensive to launch this technology because there's false positives and such. But we were because we like to be sort of the, the forward mover, you know, first to market with these types of technologies. And in this case, we were the second to market. We offered it out to five of our top salespeople at the time in a beta test. And we were giving them an extra spiff. So they were all excited to sell it. And on the second day, one of our top salespeople, Ed, he ran up to me and he said, I sold my first fall detection. I said, that's great. He goes, it's interesting. The woman I sold it to lives in DC. Instead of friends and neighbors as her emergency contact, she has US Marshals. And I said, well, what was her name? He goes, let me check. Uh, Ruth Ginsburg. I said, hold on a second. (laughs) (laughs) Getting Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is our fourth fall detection customer. I was, I'm high-fiving around the office. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. And then I realized, oh my, what if something goes wrong? We're screwed. Uh, (laughs) At that point, I said, hold the box, hold the shipment, you know, write a letter, Justice Ginsburg, anything you need, you want, call me, text me, here's my home phone, cell phone. Turns out after all that, we mess up the color of her button. She wanted a black button. We gave her a white button for her wrist. Whoops. And uh, she wrote me a letter on scary Supreme Court stationery. (laughs) And I'm like, this is not good. Of course, we fixed her problem. But as I do with sitting Supreme Court justices or an average customer, I called up. I said, uh, can I talk to the justice thinking they tell me to go away? And of course, she comes on the line and tells me her story. And she was very reasonable. She was upset that something went wrong, but she was very reasonable that we were responsive and fixed her problem and committed to not letting things like that happen again, particularly with a level of particularness that she had which is a good standard to operate on for your general population. If you can treat everybody like they're the most important person in the country, then you're you're developing processes and standards that are going to put you above and beyond the competition and differentiate your experience. And so it's been a good example for my team all these years later. So to the extent that any of us out there perhaps don't have sitting justices from the Supreme Court on our uh, mailing list or on our uh, customer list, I think that still goes without saying that it's, this is a theme that I'm hearing in our conversation is recognizing when it's time to pick up the phone or have a face-to-face conversation versus when it's time to write. Somebody gets a letter like that from the justice a natural way of wanting to hide out of embarrassment or something. Many people may just have sent an email or written a note back or something with, of course, the correct color replacement button. But no, at that point, you pick up the phone and you say, I want to have a conversation with this person. I want to acknowledge them personally. I want them to feel like they've had a connection with me, not just that, okay, well, we fixed the problem, but you're just another button, black, white, yellow, green, blue, or otherwise. And so the judiciousness of deciding via what means to have the conversation, to exchange the information and have that connection with the audience is really paramount. Am I understanding this correctly? I think you are. You know, we're so used to being ignored by brands 
or having bad service experiences in a world where people don't want to answer the phones anymore. And, you know, you get pushed around to nowhere. It's very frustrating. And so we anticipate we have a problem that we're going to get ignored or they're not going to care. And so the companies that distinguish themselves are the ones that genuinely care and are willing to do something about it. And it starts at the top level. Look, I can't touch everybody. I don't have enough time in the day to have all those interactions. So you have to have a certain sample size of, of customers that you touch. And hopefully, you know, the, the outcomes from that scale but I think the most fun and coolest thing when you're in a service business, whatever it is, is to turn an angry customer from a raving fan. And there's no better feeling in the world. And, and you can do that by literally picking up the phone, calling them, apologizing, listening. And, you know, I'll tell you that just hearing from me, the surprise about like they don't expect to hear from it because nine times out of 10, they're not. And so I hope that sets a tone for the whole business because we want our service team to see that we need to treat every customer as if, if putting customers above all else, which is a core value of ours, is really what you believe in, then you have to take actions to do that. And I think when you do that, again, no matter what your product or strategy or how cool your office space is, you know, none of that really matters at the day if you're building great teams and providing great customer experiences. Yes, 100%. Let's go from here into helping people build that great experience, whatever it might be. Let's challenge everyone, as a matter of fact. This is your opportunity at our Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge to speak directly to our audience, Jeff, and <laughs> challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours uh, to help them have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I was thinking about another ice bucket challenge or something. An ice first bucket challenge. Well, that would... I'm not sure what influence you'd have on that one. But well, we'll do something safer and uh, okay, and less cold, uh, less chilling than that. Yes, you know, I think as a leader, getting feedback is critical, and being open and somewhat humble enough to be able to do that is is important to any team. So, I would challenge everyone to implement a mechanism for upward feedback, meaning any of your direct reports or teams that you interact with twice a year put in a feedback loop where they're writing and taking time anonymously to do that. And then creating an open forum for yourself to get your teams together and in one place, read that feedback back to them and respond to it. Don't be defensive about it. Certainly, uh, you know, embracing the feedback is key and being genuine about that. And if you can afford or organize a facilitator, an independent facilitator to do it, I would encourage that. I've used one in, in leadership retreats and whatnot. And even just about four months ago, we had a retreat in Atlantic City for a couple of days. A couple of pieces of feedback for me was one, I don't allow conflict as much as I should. And that interesting allowing conflict can help build trust because you really get to the root of things that are going on with the team. My team like to tell me that I'm, you know, get everybody to get along all the time, which I was somewhat aware of. And I think is, you know, sort of a positive motivator characteristic that you'll find with many leaders. But sometimes you need to let conflict arise. You need to let people get things out on the table and hash through. And when you come out on the other side of conflict, you can get a lot done. There's great outcomes. And I think the other thing was just being clear with strategy. You know, I have a lot in my head. I sort of know everything. So uh, as far as what's going on in the business and, you know, you sometimes lose sight that either your leaders don't know everything going on in different areas or the broader team doesn't know everything going on and being able to set a clear strategy and prioritize all the initiatives and projects of a business is key to, to making progress. So I took that feedback. I believe that it's real. I've worked hard on it. And I think there's been some, some benefits of, of just having that forum four months ago. 
conflict is so complicated on so many levels because there's there's constructive friction, right? That creative tension is another phrase, those opportunities to really be able to get into what's, you know, how do we work this out together in a way that allows everyone to feel seen, feel heard, feel understood, and ultimately come to a better outcome for everybody, as opposed to, you know, how far down the continuum, down that gray scale, where does that constructive, productive conflict turn into combat, which of course we want to avoid when it gets personal rather than objective, et cetera. And where would you say your tolerance is? How would you gauge your tolerance? Because there are those who are just like, oh, any conflict is uncomfortable, want to avoid that, make sure everybody's happy and that's good enough. And there are those who feel like anything goes. Well, it depends on the players, really. I, I think if you have players that are inauthentic, have the wrong intentions. It, to me, if you have a group that wants to get to the best answer and is committed to doing, whether it's their ideas or somebody else's, if they're committed to that, if they have good intentions, if they're all in and passionate and dedicated to the mission, then you can get somewhere. You can get a little messy. I mean, you can get the stuff out. You can hurt some feelings along the way. And everybody's, you know, big boys and girls who are experienced professionals and, and can handle it. I think then it can be very productive. If you have ill intent or you have, you know, personal agendas or you have an environment that's political or corporate or a bureaucracy, you know, it doesn't work quite as well. So, you know, in my organization, no matter how large we get, we sort of went from when we were a small, a family, and then there's the corporate on the other side, which a lot of people come from or don't like, or in, in between is what I think we are and certainly aspire to continue to be, which is a team. And with teams, there's responsibilities Every person you bring on or off a team changes the dynamic of the team. And every time that you change that, you have the opportunity to create a better team. So for me, it's always about, do we want to be a regular season team that's good enough? Do we want to be a sort of a parental playoff team that wins most of the time? Or do we want to be a championship team? And if we want to be a championship team, we have to put on championship players that have good attitudes and they don't all have to be the same. We can have different personalities, different backgrounds, diversity of experience and all other kinds of characteristics. But we all have to be aligned on the same mission and be willing to do what needs to be done to get there. Of course. Is there any particular tactic that you use when you do receive that feedback that is constructive, but maybe a little surprising. Your intention was X and it was clearly yeah. received Y, as opposed to sort of reacting in a defensive, take it personal kind of a way. What do you do to redirect that energy for yourself? Well, I try to be honest about whether I'm aware of it. I think more than anything, not necessarily believe in it, but you know, there's certain things, you know, you're you know, maybe is a weakness and there's certain things maybe you're not as, as aware of. And so I think it turns out I'm probably aware of most of the things that I could be better at, but not all of them. Certainly not all of them. You know, sometimes it's jarring. I mean, it's uh, it hurts. But I think any leader that wants to get better, you know, it's like Kobe working with on the dribbling with the left hand. I mean, if you know what you're not good at, if you're willing to work at, if you truly are ambitious about being the best version of yourself, then you're going to work on your weaknesses. And I think that goes back to what I said at the beginning with the job changing. You know, each year, 17 years in, every single year my job changes. And if I don't get better, if I don't practice and work on my weaknesses and get that feedback from the team and get that feedback from the board and meet other CEOs and listen to your podcast, the company's going to outgrow you. And ultimately, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you want the company to outgrow you at a certain point, you know, and you hope you can put in a succession plan that makes sense for whatever period that is. You're not going to live or run the business forever. 
but you know, I still like running this business and I aspire to get better at my job. And so I try to put in the work to do that. And I noticed that because anybody missed it along the way, there was a little reference to if I don't listen to your podcast and if I don't, which of course would never want to happen. So everybody listen to the podcast. That's right. It helps. It does. So if someone in your organization wanted to move up into a senior leadership role, aside from technical expertise, what's the one skill they'd have to demonstrate and why? Ooh, well, it's hard to name just one. I think, you know, the, the ones that come to mind are certainly drive, commitment to excellence, you know, people that get things done. There's people that talk, they're great talkers. And then there's other people, maybe great talkers, but they also get things done. And I think everybody knows who those folks are in those organizations. And not just getting things done, but it's doing more than it's asked of you, right? It's going a layer or two beyond what the job description says, right? Be reliable, you know, do what you say you're going to do. You know, those things add up. And those are always the people, regardless of whatever title you have or compensation you have, or I don't care where you came from or how many things you did before this, because everybody has those. At the end of the day, people don't care what your title is when they work for you. They care that you are a reliable person who does what you say you're going to do and treats people with respect. I talk about respect a lot in this business because I think, you know, getting things done starts first and foremost with that. And most of that comes down to just appreciating that we're all different, that we have different backgrounds and different makeups, and we do different jobs. And so taking time to listen and learn and gather a perspective for that person and what they do is important. 100%. And everybody needs to feel, again, seen, heard, and understood, right back to that beautiful Oprah quote. And finally... As Peter Drucker famously said, and you have mentioned culture a number of times in this conversation as well, Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's one communication pattern that's had a big impact, positive or negative, on a team you were part of? Well, first of all, I'll say culture is an overused word these days, yes. very overused. And people confuse it with cool office spaces and you know, free food days and taking the company to the baseball game. And we do all that too. You know, That's a cherry on top as far as I'm concerned. The, the substantive culture is really comes down to, to me, I would say five things. And I'll tell you what I think the most important is. First off, do you believe in the mission of the company? And with our service, it's easy to get in back of, you know, in many cases, saving lives. Do you have leaders or do you have managers at the organization, right? Do you have people that are my way or the highway, do what you're told or you're out of here? Or do you have supportive, inspiring, motivating people that people want to work for? The third is the feedback at every level and having mechanisms whether it's broader company or leader feedback and actually doing something about it and implementing new, new ideas. And then I think career pathing, job progression is critical. We're doing a lot around that as the business matures. The most important thing is recognition. And it's free and it's simple and it's overlooked in many cases by most organizations. But we're very intentional about it and put in a program three or four years ago called You Rock which is a peer-to-peer -peer recognition program. We give out somewhere between 350 and 400 U-Rocks a month, which is- Is this actually a rock of some sort? It used to be a, actually a note card, like a five by seven note card. Now it's a digital program, which is great and allowed us to, uh, to scale it. But it's really for above and beyond performance. If you hear or see something at the individual or team level that impresses you and people do more than they're, than they're asked to do or what's on the job description, then we give out a U-Rock and we do a lot of storytelling around it at our monthly town halls and our cultural events. We do an email to the company wide each day called uh, Kudos Corner that promotes one of the U-Rocks. And I'll tell you, it's a powerful tool. Like anything in life, the more you give, the more you get. But I'll tell you, even me, when I get one of those, it touches me. I mean, it really, it can be something small or large. It's a powerful part of our culture. 
it goes right back to that. Do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? Do you feel understood? Do you feel appreciated? And people are willing, I have generally found, you could tell me if you agree with this, Jeff, that people are willing to give more if they feel like what they have given has been received and appreciated, then they'll keep going. If you keep asking someone for more and they don't feel like you've appreciated what they've already given, why bother? Why go the extra mile? But uh, it sounds like you're continuing to reinforce the value of giving as much as you can, always going the extra mile because it will be noticed, it will be appreciated. That's right. And don't confuse it with not letting people know what the expectations are and holding people accountable there. You know, some leaders believe that if I give positive praise out, they're going to stop working or stop doing everything with work. You know, none of that's real, right? People want to work for, and they want to know what they're contributing, right? They want to tie their work into the objectives of the company. And so if you can put in a framework, a goal framework, we use a, a goal framework called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, but it's a transparent, collaborative, communicative goal framework that allows an entry-level worker to tie their work into the goals of the company. And that's when you have something special, right? When that's being driven by the, from the bottom, as far as you know, knowing what I do is going to have an impact, you know, that's more powerful than money or title or just about anything else. Couldn't have said it better myself. And I think that's a great place to go. So Jeff, how can people learn more about you and Medical Guardian? Well, certainly go to our website, medicalguardian.com. You can also go to my LinkedIn. Uh, you can look me up by Jeff Gross, Jeff with a G, where I'm always trying to post you know, things going on in the business and other cultural and leadership information. And great to connect with people out there. And if I can be helpful, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Laura. Have a great day. And to everybody else out there listening, thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, and all the usual suspects where you find your favorite podcast today so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to Speaking to Influence Com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.